filled with, with much joy and um, gladness, but it is important for us nonetheless. 2 Samuel chapter 1, please follow along as I read from God's word. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was not sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword." And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck, struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Hear the word of the Lord. It has been a little while since we were in 1 Samuel. Again, just to kind of um, acclimate you to what we do here at Grace Covenant Church we are celebrating nine years as a church plant in February, and we have tried to be faithful in preaching the full counsel of God, meaning all of Scripture. And so our pattern has been Old Testament, then to a New Testament book, and then back to an Old Testament, and so on and so forth. And so finishing Hebrews, the elders praying through what would be next, we thought it appropriate to go back and finish up the book of Samuel, Originally, it was just one book, and we now have it as it was translated. 
First uh, and Second Samuel, and so we want to go back and spend some time. And through the course of this particular sermon and others, hopefully, if you weren't with us and you're not as familiar with First Samuel, we'll be we'll be touching back and reminding us of where we've been to hopefully fill in some of the gaps. So please bear with me as we work through this particular passage of Scripture. Hopefully it will all come together by or with the Lord's help. I wanted to begin by thinking about the impact of someone's death upon us who we have spent a lot of time with, who has really rubbed shoulders with us a lot, informed the way we think, feel, react, for good or ill, when that individual dies, it really is a time to think and reflect upon their life and how their life has affected my life and how that should then inform how I live. And it reminded me of Adoniram Judson, who was a Baptist missionary. Before all of that, earlier in his life, he was a student at Providence College. And while there, his parents sent him, entrusting the college to shape and educate their son. A witty uh, upperclassman had a huge impact and persuasion, not for good, on Adoniram Judson. So much so that he embraced enlightenment ideas and things like uh, deism, this idea that, yeah, there may be a God who started things, but a God who is disengaged and just kind of like one who created a clock and got it going has removed himself and is no longer engaged and things just play out the way they're supposed to play out. There was this upperclassman in particular who really influenced him, Jacob Imes. And so much so that at the age of 20, Adoniram went to his parents, both strong believers, and said, I'm done with Christianity. I'm actually going to live a life of pleasure, hedonistic lifestyle in the big city, pursuing, uh, pursuing the arts, pursuing um, uh, the stage, um, in particular, the theater. And so it was during this kind of rebellious stage where Adoniram Judson finds himself one evening staying at an inn outside the big city. And this is where I want us to kind of spend just a little bit of time to think about this episode on his life. He checks into a room and immediately the, the room beside him, he's hearing groans, moans, a man who is really struggling physically. All through the the night, this persists. And as he's laying in bed, not able to sleep, he's thinking, I wonder if this guy knows where he is going if he happens to die. Death, the reality of the end of this man's life, was ever-present for Adoniram on this particular night. Not not getting much sleep, but finally the noises kind of stop, so he ends up dozing off. Morning comes quickly, he wakes up, gathers his belongings, quickly is checking out of his room, and on his way out, he has a small interaction with the innkeeper, and he actually asks the innkeeper about the man who was sick next to him. What, 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 what ended up happening to this man? And the innkeeper was quick in responding, the man did not make it. He died 
that very night. And Adoniram asked him, do you know who this man was? And just to think about God's providence, he said, yes, a former student from Providence College, Jacob Imes. It was the man who had informed and, and, and um, caused Adoniram to adopt and embrace all of these different absent of the true God's philosophy or ideology. And it was at that moment that he was struck to the core. An event like that, an episode like that, where he was so close to someone, hearing of their death, and then spending much time wrestling with that remarkable night on his own sinful heart. I encourage you to read any stories on the the, the latter parts of his life, but the Lord really used that death in particular to stir Adoniram to much reflection and emotions because of the death of Jacob. As we enter 2 Samuel, we encounter David whose life was also dramatically changed and impacted by the death of Saul. The news of his death coming to him had a huge impact on his life. And so we want to spend just a few moments thinking about a little bit of the backstory. Like, how did we get to this episode where there's this Amalekite coming to David to share, holding the crown and the armlet, sharing the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan? So this is where hopefully we can fill in some of the maybe gaping holes of where you remember where we've been, what transpired in 1 Samuel In order to escape from Saul's pursuit, David was on the run. King Saul began to understand that things were not headed in a good direction for his kingship and made aware that God has actually removed his blessing and placed it upon another. And out of anger, jealousy, you fill in the blank, he is pursuing David, and so David has been on the run for years at this point, escaping the the clasp or grasp of Saul in pursuit of of killing him. He wants wants to, to wipe him off the face of the earth. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, we hear that David, at this point in the story, actually flees to the Philistines, that is how desperate things got. If you know the backstory of David and Goliath, stories that we know, Goliath was a Philistine. At this point, out of desperation, David and his 600 men actually flee to the land of the Philistines in order to, in hopes that Saul would, would maybe hear of that and eventually turn and stop pursuing him. And ultimately, that was the result. Saul eventually turned away from pursuing him at that point. At the same moment in time, the Philistines were told in 1 Samuel 28, gather their forces for war against Israel. Remember, Saul is the king. Philistines are gathering their huge armies, getting ready for war. And even in the midst of this time, there are several smaller events happening. So David has gone to the land of the Philistines and he has actually been serving, so to speak, 
the, the king of Gath, Achish, who is a Philistine himself, for over a year at this point, David and his men are, are found to be faithful warriors even for the Philistines. He had given Achish his word, and Achish found nothing but good in David. So as the Philistines are gathering their huge army to come against Israel, David comes at at what some would call a crossroads because the army of the Philistines are getting ready to go and attack Israel, King Saul and his army. And in the Lord's providence, David and his men are actually at this point ready to go. And it's the Philistine commanders that say, there's no way that this Hebrew and his men are going to go with us to battle against the Israelites. And so, even against King Achish's desires, uh, the commanders convince convince him that David needs to go. And so David and his men are sent away. And remember, you may not remember, David asked for a place that he would inhabit during this time, and Achish gives him Ziklag. So that the, the the way that this story unfolds, David and his men have returned to Ziklag. But you've got to understand what transpired to get them to the beginning of 2 Samuel 1. So they leave the Philistines. They're not allowed to go and fight with them. They go home to Ziklag. When they arrive there, they see the city, the town burning. The Amalekites have come and raided that town. And they didn't destroy the people. The wives, the children were all taken And they were taken captive, and the Amalekites leave on their journey with all the spoils of war. That's what David and his men come back to. They are devastated. David cries out to the Lord for guidance. What shall I do? Should I pursue the Amalekites? And the Lord answers, yes, go. They are devastated, and they go. So we've got Philistines about to attack Israel. David goes to Ziklag. Now he's off to hopefully bring back his wives and his children and all of his soldiers' wives and children. They are successful. Not one wife or child was injured or harmed. They brought all of that back. In addition, other spoils. If the Lord had blessed that, they come back. This is them coming back to Ziklag. At this point, we read in 1 Samuel 31 the events that happened to Saul But David and his men don't know anything that has actually transpired with Saul and Jonathan. So that's a little bit of the backstory. And I want you to hear how verse 31, the narrator, the author of this book, describes the end of Saul's life. Because it's important, based off of this story, that the Amalekite comes and tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So please hear 1 Samuel 31, 2 through 6. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, 
he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Then we get a remarkable tale told by an Amalekite. I, I want you to hear the irony. The Amalekites play a very important role in all that happened in Saul's kinship, the people of Israel going back even to when they were brought out of bondage, out of slavery from Egypt, uh, what David had just done in getting back his, his, his bride, his, his wives and children and, and all the spoils, all of that had to do with the Amalekites. And now you have an Amalekite coming, covered in dust with his, his clothing torn, paying homage to David and telling a very different tale. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says this, if you ever have a choice between the narrator of an Old Testament book and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. I think that's helpful as we look at these two tales being told. And then he says, have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? I don't know if you've met any Amalekites, but they don't have a good reputation in the Old Testament, to say the least. So at this point, David does not know that Saul and Jonathan had died. Here again, the, the tale that is spun by the Amalekite. So David said to the young man, verse 5, who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told him. And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Regardless of the truthfulness of the Amalekites' account, it is no coincidence that one of the most divinely cursed people of the ancient world was the very one who snatched the crown and armlet that was on King Saul's body. This is where I want to take you, back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is what the Lord commanded to King Saul. This is important to hear. In 1 Samuel 15, verses 2 and 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, he's telling King Saul, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Saul, in 1 Samuel, spared the best of the sheep and oxen and all that was good and would not utterly destroy what the Lord had commanded him to do. 
If you remember, there's this famous scene where the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he hears the sheep bleeding, making noise. And it's evidence that Saul had disobeyed God. The fact that he could hear any livestock that should have been all destroyed. I don't want you to miss this part because I think it's important. God's judgment is sure. For some of us, that should be terrifying if you are outside of Christ. For some of us, there is so much comfort in that if you have experienced injustice and maybe witnessed it and realized that there is still a great need for justice. God, who has promised he will judge, will judge the living and the dead. In his timing and according to the counsel of his perfect will, his punishment of sin will unfold. Just think for a moment how many years had passed from him delivering his people from Egypt to him giving King Saul the command to destroy and wipe out the Amalekites. Some have maybe said, this, this timing is off. This should have happened. If you said that these people deserve your judgment, this should have already come to pass. His timing is perfect, and his judgment is true and sure, and it will come to pass. Then from 1 Samuel 15, when Saul disobeyed, the king, the, disobeyed God to him actually dying on the battlefield, some may have said, Man, way too much time had passed. If Saul disobeyed, he should have experienced the punishment of God right then and there. And yet it took time, and it was according to God's perfect will, exactly when Saul would fall on the battlefield to fulfill and bring to completion what God's judgment had said would come to pass. The Amalekite who brought the news to David... He expected David to respond to the news of Saul's death in a very different way, possibly with joy for what it would now mean for him. But this Amalekite was not aware of how those who truly belong to the kingdom of God respond in situations like this. You can just imagine, he's traveling a far distance to get to David to present the crown and the armlet, thinking this is going to allow him to receive favor and honor and esteem. Because surely David, who has been oppressed by Saul, is going to respond with joy and thanksgiving. God's judgment upon Saul, which David knew would come to pass, calls not for rejoicing, but actually a time of grief and repentance. Instead of rejoicing over the death of the man who tirelessly pursued David, we read that David launched into public mourning. Just to pause for a second, how would you respond in hearing the death of someone who had oppressed you like David had been oppressed? 
We read in verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And one way when we're looking at these first 16 verses and looking at how David responds, it really is establishing for us um, an idea of kingdom ethics or kingdom principles. David truly is part of the kingdom of God. And the way that he responds to the king of Israel being slain actually helps us understand what it should look like in our life as we respond to different things as kingdom people. God's people are not to rejoice at judgment, even the judgment of a great sinner like King Saul. Remember, David had spent the last several years as a fugitive, and his return home and fulfillment of God's promise to him depended on the removal of King Saul, and yet, instead of throwing a feast, he fasted. To help us kind of think about this, John Calvin is so helpful in his commentary. John Calvin warns that God does not want us to be presumptuous in our rejoicing that we fail to consider our own sins and thus displease him. We ought also to tremble before his majesty. Know that we too are as deserving of punishment and grief as those whom he punishes. I hope you're getting that. This is why Paul wrote, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There was no gloating over the death of Saul. Even if he was one who pursued and oppressed, what John Calvin was saying, that when the judgment of God is made apparent upon sinners, we should not be presumptuous to think that we don't also deserve it outside of the work of Christ on our behalf. It should cause us to tremble, to respond in self-analyzing, asking God to reveal what sin is in our hearts that we also are guilty of and need to repent of. The, re the response of David is so informative for this kind of kingdom ethic it is not a time of rejoicing. It's actually a time of, of grieving and reflecting on our own lives as sinners. May we do the same as you're thinking about this particular episode in God's story, the death of King Saul. He was told to do something very clearly from God, blatantly disobeyed. The stakes were high. He was called to be the king of Israel. Friends, we need to understand, God has given us his law. It is perfect. It is good. We are all, all of us, called to obey God. We all have fallen short of God's glory. James tells us that if you've even broken one of God's law, you've, you're guilty of them all. If you see how the punishment and wrath of God unfolds to King Saul, we all should be trembling as we stand before God in our own sin. 
And may this be a day where you point your gaze towards the only one who has made a way for rebels like us, just like King Saul, that should be punished and put to death. Christ died for you. If, if the gospel, the good news has not clicked in your mind or in your heart to have eyes to see that outside of Christ, you will be damned. You deserve the judgment of God that will come to you. It is appointed for every man to live once and to die and stand before God and be judged. So we look at David's response, and there is much for us to apply to our own lives. And here David grieved not only for the death of Saul, but for his beloved friend Jonathan. And we also read that he is, he is lamenting the plight of his people, of Israel as well. Here in, in verse 12, And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So to kind of paint this landscape, their leader had led them astray. Not only was he experiencing the punishment of God, but the people of God were just destroyed on the battlefield. And whenever we're reading through the Old Testament and there is victory for the people of God or defeat, it is always associated to disobedience that leads to defeat. And so as a people, they are experiencing the judgment of God and David is mourning over, lamenting the, the state of the people of God. So the grief of David and his men, really, it is striking if you just pause for a moment to reflect. The condition of the people of God actually disturbed them. And again, kind of a kingdom principle, that same principle should actually control our life in the kingdom. This is how I want to connect this, by asking a question. Do we mourn, grieve over the unbelief the apostasy and the coldness in the visible church that we witness around us. If you are on social media in any way, shape, or form, you are probably flooded with maybe some positives that are happening on the evangelical landscape, but what really gets the clicks and the views are when anything is going bad or awry, a leader has fallen misstep into sin, whatever the case may be, an onslaught of how the people of God are, are, are walking outside the bounds of his will. And our response in the flesh most of the time is to probably just pronounce judgment upon them, affirm that what they're doing is wrong, and cast them away. I don't think that that's what we see with David and his men in this fasting and grieving for the people and their state. One commentator says how dangerous it is for us to take up a conservative haughtiness against liberalism and an evangelical arrogance that contradicts the spirit of the gospel. 
Rather, such unbelief or error in the church should drive us to mourning and grief and prayer and sorrow. Do we ever earnestly grieve over the desperate condition of the church? I was guilty, uh, I'm guilty of this for sure, but even as leading out as an example in our pastoral prayer, just wanting y'all to hear this from me, we have over the course of the history of GCC really tried to pray for other local churches. We're not as consistent publicly, corporately as we ought, but where, where the rubber meets the road is we tend to pray for churches that we are affirming where they are biblically, uh, the doctrine that they hold to, and, and that's right. We should be lifting them up, but we should also be praying for the churches that are not doing well, that are unhealthy, that are not fixed upon the gospel, expository, expository preaching, up, actually opening up God's word and being faithful to it. And so that is a public acknowledgement. I am sorry. We as your shepherds need to be praying earnestly for those churches who are not being faithful, just as much as we're praying for what we would rejoice in seeing other healthy local, local churches, that there would be a, a reformation within the 150 plus churches just here in Weatherford. May we respond in this same type of grief that David and his men do. Now, moving on, there's a question that is posed to the Amalekite, posed by David. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This leads to the death of the Amalekite. The question, I think, is one that is applicable to us. The question expresses a principle that should also direct kind of kingdom ethics and behavior. Here's how I want to pose the question to you. Do you live fearing only to displease your king? There is such a reverence and godly fear that David has for the office he knows, he's been anointed by Samuel, he knows that he is one day to be the king. And as we unfold the chapters in 1 Samuel, we see that he has opportunities given to him that in the flesh he could seize and take by force what he knows God has promised him. But he doesn't. Even when he cuts just the, the sliver off of Saul's robe, there's remorse because he feels like he overstepped his, his um, posture of waiting on God and the reverence for the office of the king of Israel. What I want you to think about as you're applying this to yourself is as you're living in the kingdom of God, as a believer, are you living in that same kind of reverence and awe and godly fear for how you behave and how your king is observing it. So there was a, um, a Polish prince who would always carry with him a picture of his father. And at certain times, he used to take it out. He would look at it and he would say these words, let me do nothing 
unbecoming to so excellent a father. There is a kingdom living where there is such a a thing as a healthy, saving fear, a fear that preserves a godly fear that actually controls how how we act, how we respond. Jonathan Edwards, in his life, wrote, I think, 70 resolutions that he would live by, strive with God's help to walk out. And as we're starting this new year, I think we all probably... Um, have thought about making New Year's resolutions, things in your life that you are seeking to do that would honor the Lord. One of his resolutions read like this, resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He wrote this at a very young age and sought to walk that out in his life. Resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I were, if it were the last hour of my life. I think it's hitting that same note. Do I live life fearing only to displease my king? David was so taken aback that this Amalekite would dishonor King Saul, not even acknowledging that it was God who had placed Saul in that office for such a time as this. And now to be slain on the battlefield and David's response in having this man executed manifested his living in reverence and awe and godly fear in all of his life, in all spheres of his life. So in verse 15, David called one of his young men, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. The irony is that the young man didn't kill Saul, according to 1 Samuel 31. He loses his life for a lie. So reflecting on, on, on King Saul and his kingdom, Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites. I want you to hear the irony. Instead of destroying everything, and this was against God's strict orders, now an Amalekite has plundered him. Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he did not. Now an Amalekite claims to have wiped out Saul, but he did not. I want you to think for a moment the falsehood that is being exposed in the Amalekite's life. In a sense, the inner man is being made known. Three-day journey from the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites and Ziklag, where David was living at the time. The Amalekite was serious about getting the news to the one who would be the next king. Motives seemed to be concealed upon arrival. His, His clothes are torn and dirt on his head, and yet it doesn't take David long to condemn him as a murderer. Again, Dale Dale Ralph Davis so helpfully writes, and I want you to think about this. So on the first page of another biblical book, we run straight into God who exposes us, who delights in truth in the inward parts, who sets our secret sins in the light of his presence. As we look through the Bible, 
this will not be the last episode. There will be Amalekites in the church. Ananias and Sapphira will fill the need to boost their self-esteem within the Jerusalem church and end up in twin graves for it. Even if we could fool kings and churches, Jesus has taught us that no one, please hear this, no one will escape full disclosure of what's in your heart. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Friends, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. He then says this, yet strangely we find ourselves often cuddling this absurd notion that if we have duped man's eye, we have eluded heaven's gaze as well. Regardless as, uh, of whether or not David fully understood the ins and outs of the death of Saul, God did. The Amalekite found the end of his life that very day because the inner man was revealed and the outworking of God's judgment was just using a vessel like David to bring his life to an end. Do you relate to this? We often are cuddling this absurd notion that we, if we've duped our neighbor, maybe your mom and dad, maybe your spouse, maybe your coworkers, you've duped them into thinking that you're acting a certain way when really something else is going on, you have not eluded heaven's gaze. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Romans 2.16, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Even if he was innocent of slaying Saul, the Amalekite's sin of lying received just punishment. And so in this, you may be kind of wrestling with how this judgment was, was played out. David acted as judge on God's behalf. And in his action, he reminds us that in the day of judgment to come, Jesus, the King of Kings, and final judge of all people will deliver his enemies away to eternal punishment and will receive his people into the righteous blessing of eternal life. And so if, if everything else that I've said thus far is kind of falling to the wayside, please hear again, God's judgment is certain. In Saul's case and in the Amalekites' case, the king who will judge please hear this, God has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ to be that judge, is also the king who graciously laid down his life for a people. He became a curse for us. This is the scandal of the gospel. The one who will judge is the one who laid down his life to rescue sinners from their sin. The one who will judge was the one who endured the wrath of God as our substitute. He took on our judgment 
so that we could be declared not guilty, cleansed, forgiven, justified. How amazing the work of Christ on sinners' behalf. So God's word in this particular chapter is in the minor key. But when people who have had a big impact on our lives die, it is good for us to do much reflection. And it is good for us to really think hard about their eternal state and our eternal state. I want to end with reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. God's word tells us this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Let us pray. Father, for many of us, we get uncomfortable when facing stories that talk about death, death of friends or loved ones. Our society and culture have stationed cemeteries as far away from our day-to-day life as possible just so we can not think about the reality of death. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for putting this particular passage before us this day. It is good for your people to be in the house of mourning. As we start a new year, many of us are tempted to create a lifestyle that is just full of fun and excitement and pleasure. And yet your word tells us that true gladness, true hope, true joy is actually found in the house of mourning. Father, teach us what this means. Apply it to our hearts and our minds and use this particular passage and the way in which David and his men respond to the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan and all the people of Israel that lay dead on the battlefield. May we also have this kind of kingdom ethic or principle when we think about our own lives, this local church, and the church at large. Father, strike us to the core in in grieving the sins of the evangelical church. And may we be a people that, that mourn and have sorrow and plead in prayer for reformation, for repentance. For Christ's namesake, the testimony of his perfection and holiness is at stake when the church is displaying either your goodness or confusion to a dying and hurting world. May we be a church that is found faithful by your grace to to display your glory to those around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.